0: Thank you for listening to this episode of 13. This is part two of a two part episode. If you haven't yet listened to part one, we'd recommend starting there. We'll be here when you get back. The next day was Sunday. And after church, I spent the rest of the day relaxing at home and texting Lenny. After the evening service was finished, I went back to the church library, and I brought the journal from the meeting house with me. The library was cozy. Big, upholstered chairs and stiff couches. I browsed the shelves. Normal church library stock. Used copies of popular Christian literature, biblical financial advice, devotionals, and group study guides. The church records were at the end of the room. They were bound volumes of documents and recorded events. Volume after volume of church directories, sermons, liturgies, and events dating back to the late 1700s. Some of these accounts predate the United States itself, if only by a year or two. I wanted to get a feel for how far back the church record goes, so that I could tell if the journal I'd found really had any information that wasn't already known. I opened the earliest volume, the one where the key was tucked away inside the cover. But this time, I was just reading. My phone buzzed. Lenny and I were still texting, flirting, getting to know each other. I sat down in one of those big, cozy chairs and started browsing the records. It began with an accounting of church membership, a list of about thirty names. There were records of births, deaths, and marriages. I panned through this old volume of recreated pages with original signatures and notes and records. I remembered what Heather told me on my original tour of the church. Back then, the meeting house wasn't just a church. It was everything. The only place in the settlement that wasn't someone's home. It was school during the day, the town council at night, It was a courtroom. It was a celebration hall. And it was the church. The reason I love church history and decided to study it is the feeling of being connected with people who are long gone, reading about their struggles and their aspirations, knowing that no matter how much time there is between us, we share this church this place and we hope for a better world and the people who come after me when i'm long gone they'll feel all the same things i do one big human family no matter how far in the past or how far in the future the thread of grace binds us all together throughout According to the official records, the original settlement was founded by five families, totaling 31 people. They fell on hard times, and at some point, it's unclear exactly when, they met up with a single, surviving woman from another settlement. Not exactly the happy accident Heather made it out to be on my first day, but she was right about one thing. They seemed to team up, combine their resources, and work together to find a way to survive. Ah. Lenny again. Out of the window, the sun was starting to fall behind the buildings in the neighborhood. I leaned back into that big, comfy chair, settling my head against the cushion and putting my feet up on the ottoman in front of me. The quiet of the empty building was nice. I must have dozed off, and I felt a hand on my shoulder, gently nudging me awake. I startled in surprise, and opened my eyes to see Lenny waking me up. Hey there, sleepyhead, he joked. Hey, I'm sorry, I must have dozed off. I rubbed my eyes, and when I opened them... I looked around the room. I didn't see Lenny anywhere. I was on my feet instantly. What the fuck was going on? The screen on my phone was lit up, and I could see a couple of texts on the lock screen. Lenny had just sent another message. He wasn't here at all. While I'd been asleep, the sun had gone down behind the other buildings in the neighborhood. The sky outside was still twilight, but the building was dark and eerie, and I was all of a sudden very on edge. I didn't like being up here all alone in this now dark building. I went downstairs as quietly and deliberately as I could. That same feeling, like when you're a kid and you turn off the basement light before running up the stairs. It was that feeling all the way out of the church. I went back to the parsonage, my home for the summer, and the feeling only subsided a little. I pulled out the journal that I'd found in the meeting house. This thing had already cost me a lot of anxiety. Was it worth it? If I was going to stress about it this much, I might as well find out what it has to say. I carefully opened the front cover, testing the rigidity to make sure I didn't just immediately destroy it. The leather binding and the paper inside were in remarkably good condition. I know that I should have taken it to someone who could restore it or preserve it and parse its contents. But I didn't. When I started reading, I noticed two things right away. One, the writer had amazing handwriting. Beautiful cursive. Two, this account of the first years of the original frontier settlement were way more involved. The church records that I'd just finished reading told the story like a quick narrative, like someone was jotting it down after the fact from memory, which is probably exactly what happened but there was no real detail. The story in this journal began in Boston the night before they left the city for the frontier, and it told the story just as it happened. It's written in first-person narrative, and the writer introduces herself as Mary Catherine. Hello, Mary Catherine. Her words were rich with excitement and The great wild continent in front of them The unknown The endless wilderness of North America There were occasional records of inventory throughout Interrupting the story Supplies and food stock But mostly, it was just Mary Catherine Telling me about the experience itself And I felt like I was right there with her. I wondered what she was like. She could read and write, which was unusual for a woman in the 18th century. Unusual for a lot of people. I wondered how old she was. What her voice sounded like. Reminding myself that she had a full inner life as vivid as mine. And now, for all I know, this is all that's left of her. When I'm done, I should really give this to someone who knows what they're doing. As I read further, I imagined her more and more. I had an idea of what she looked like, based on absolutely nothing, just my imagination. I read about nights she spent looking up at the sky, absolutely teeming with stars. Both me and Mary Catherine are on the first real adventure of our lifetimes. And even though we were two centuries apart, we would both end up right here. That night, I had another dream I was lost. This time in the neighborhood around the church. The night was dark, there were no streetlights. There was no traffic or anyone else on the sidewalks. I could barely make out my surroundings. I walked around block after block of row houses that all looked the same. Trees were growing up out of the road, right in the middle, where the center line should be. I turned a corner, and I could see the church diagonal across the street. The dimensions were all off. The steeple was lit up brighter than I'd ever seen it. The iron fence around the garden, around the parsonage where I live. It was backlit by lights I couldn't see. And then I saw her. Elena Bishop. The woman in the painted portrait by the entrance to the meeting house. The woman from my last nightmare. Waiting for me in the dark hall. Now she was waiting for me by the gate. There were other figures behind the iron fence. They were walking around the garden. I could barely make out the movement, but it was there. I knew I couldn't go in. I watched her standing by the gate. She watched me back. We were locked in a terrible stalemate, and I knew I couldn't take my eyes off of her. If I did, well, I didn't know what would happen, but I knew it would be the end for me. I didn't shoot up out of bed this time. I gradually woke up aware of both places at once. My quiet, eerily quiet bedroom. And the dream world, where I watched these figures tracking around outside my door. It became fuzzy. The real world slowly overtook it, until, somehow, at some point, I was fully awake. I looked at the clock. 3.02 in the morning. My body was tense, and I was on edge. The dream still felt very real and very present. I had to pee, but I hesitated to get up and walk through the sitting room. There were windows facing out into the garden, and the skylight that looked up at the steeple I know it's silly, but I didn't want to walk by those windows. I didn't want to look up at that skylight. I had this terrible fear that if I looked up at the skylight, I'd see her. Elena Bishop, levitating above the parsonage. The bottoms of her feet a few inches above the glass, staring down at me. I was afraid to look out and see those figures moving around out there, in the garden, maybe even standing there at the window, looking in at me. It's all irrational, and it's silly in the light of day, but in the middle of the night, when the dream hasn't faded yet, all alone in a strange place, it feels all too real. I finally fell asleep after 5 in the morning, only to wake up to my alarm at 6.30. This was going to be a long day. After work, I took a nap. One of those naps that goes too long and it's hard to wake up from. So you might be better off just going straight back to sleep for the night. So... It was in that mindset that I picked up the journal I'd found in the meeting house, and I started reading again. Mary Catherine and the rest of her party left Boston in the spring. They took all summer and fall crossing the Appalachian Mountains. There were equipment failures and other delays. Almost right away, things started going wrong. Mary Catherine tried to keep a positive attitude about it all. She had become close friends with another woman on the journey named... Holy shit. Elena Bishop. The woman in the painting. The woman haunting my nightmares. They were just making the best of it. You know how when things just keep going wrong, it becomes a running joke? That's what she and Elena were doing. Elena didn't seem scary, as far as Mary Catherine was concerned. I rolled my eyes at letting my subconscious latch onto that painting and build her up as some severe and menacing figure. I remembered reading somewhere that people didn't smile for photos in the early days of photography. It might be the only photo ever taken of them, and they wanted to look dignified. That was probably true for paintings as well. A thought occurred to me. Oh no. There were two groups that founded the church. They found each other. A happy accident. One had been devastated by a tragedy, and one was lost. The group that got lost wrote the church records. And they didn't include Mary Catherine or Elena. Which meant... I went back to Mary Catherine's journal with a heavy heart. I knew now what she couldn't have known at the time she was writing. They were doomed. Mary Catherine, Elena, and the others made their way across the Appalachian Mountains... The landscape became less mountainous and transitioned into rolling hills. It was getting colder at night. They hadn't made it to their destination yet, but nonetheless, it was time to settle down and prepare for winter. They'd have to pick up again in the spring and finish the journey. They found a clearing by the river and decided to spend the winter there. The fast-moving river wouldn't freeze over, so they'd have a water source all winter. Time was short, and winter was coming on fast. So instead of building individual homes for all nine families, they could make better use of their resources and time by building three big houses for three families each to share. Just like the rest of the trip, this didn't come without some bumps in the road. Several days of heavy storms slowed down construction. The mood in Mary Catherine's words, even in her handwriting, was becoming more dire. The whole expedition was beginning to feel cursed. On the fourth night of heavy storms, the river overcame its banks. The flood surprised the sleeping settlers. Everyone escaped with their lives, but the homes they were building were washed away, along with a lot of their supplies for the winter. The settlers began to panic. The nights were becoming too cold to bear. They went into the forest to find another site to ride out the winter. They found a small clearing about a mile from the river that had land flat enough to build. There wouldn't be enough time to build three homes anymore. They needed shelter from the cold now. All of their energy went into building a single, large structure that would house everyone. They'd share heat from one fire, light from one lantern. They'd conserve what little food wasn't washed away in the flood. It was going to be a long, hard winter. I started to sense a resigned tone in Mary Catherine's writing, and the entries themselves became less frequent. Gone were the little moments around the camp that she thought were funny or interesting. The little asides where she poked fun at the men in the group. She didn't recount conversations with Elena anymore. She only veered off track to talk about the heavy mist that hung around the forest. She wrote about it a lot. But it began to feel oppressive. The world beyond a hundred yards or so was just a blur. Like that gray mist, everything else about her writing began to feel more cold, more distant, a little fuzzy around the edges. I closed the book and went to the window. There was a mist hanging over the city tonight, too. I went out in the garden just to stand in it. In the mist, as different as this place is now compared to when it was wilderness, I looked out at that rainy mist and fog and felt the same heaviness Mary Catherine did all those lifetimes ago. I had a fleeting and silly thought that somehow I hoped she could sense me here, thinking about her centuries in the future. But instead, I started to feel alone. I thought of my friends back in seminary. The women who had taken me in and accepted me for the sheltered, naive woman I was. And I felt so far away from them. I wondered who Mary Catherine missed back in Boston. The misty rain was oppressive and heavy. Hovering in the air around her then... And around me now. I had never felt further from the people that I love. I guess some things don't change. Even with time. I got ready for bed and laid down. And as I lay there, my mind turned from Mary Catherine and her ill-fated expedition to happier thoughts. I began to imagine tomorrow night with Lenny. It was a simple date. Dinner and drinks. He'd meet me here, and we'd walk the few blocks to the restaurant. We get a little table in the corner. I'm cool and interesting and confident. Our feet touch under the table. We leave, his arm around me. And then I start to imagine it in short bursts. Walking back to the church. An awkward pause on the sidewalk by the gate. My back against the iron fence. His hands on my face. My hands on his neck. I fumble with the key into the gate. We stumble into the prayer garden. His hands run down my shoulders and arms. Grazing the sides of my breasts, settling on my hips. I pull him in close to me, tight, my hands moving down his back. I push him down onto a bench and climb on top of him, his breath on my neck. I can feel him hard against me. He puts his lips to my ear. You'll never survive the winter. (gasps) I shot straight up. I was in bed, on top of the covers. All the lights were still on. I caught my breath. Whatever these nightmares were, homesickness, loneliness, I wasn't going to let them ruin my summer. But they were getting much worse. (sighs) That was turning out to be a great dream, too. The next night, Lenny and I met for our real date. We met at the church and we walked a few blocks to a little restaurant in the neighborhood. The restaurant wasn't like I'd imagined in my fantasy the night before, it was busier than I'd imagined. Louder. It started out a little awkward and strained. It had been easy and fun before, when we were just hanging out at the church, sneaking into the meeting house. After a drink or two, we loosened up, and it started to feel natural again. And he actually brought up the meeting house. I got the impression he was feeling me out, seeing if I wanted to try it again. Maybe he has a thing for trying to make a move in eerie places like that. Maybe he just didn't have a lot of ideas for things to do in the city. Either way, I didn't want to go back in there. It creeps me out just knowing it's there. He changed the subject. We finished up with our meal, and Lenny walked me back to the church. And I remembered my dream the night before. Making out by the gate our hands all over each other. I was getting turned on, thinking about it while we walked. We kissed again by the gate. We kissed for a while. Nothing as spectacular as my fantasy, but it was still nice. I thought about inviting him in, but I decided that our first real date was too soon. Also, considering where I lived we would probably want to go to his place. So we parted ways, and I went inside where I... picked up where I left off the night before. I didn't go back to Mary Catherine's journal again until the weekend. Saturday night, after my long day at work, I took a nap. I loved my after-work naps. Then... Feeling a little cramped inside the parsonage, I grabbed the journal and went over to the church library. Sadly, there was a study group going on up there, so I decided to set up in the sanctuary downstairs. That big, beautiful room with the tall, rounded ceiling and narrow stained glass windows. The lights on the stage stayed on permanently, and I set up there. The rest of the room was getting dark, but some light still trickled in from the setting sun. I picked up where I'd left off. Mary Catherine and the others were racing against a fast-approaching winter. They'd lost a lot of their supplies in the flood that destroyed the first camp they'd attempted to set up for the winter. And they were losing hope. I picked back up where I'd left off in the fall of 1769, November. They had constructed their home for the winter in a clearing about a mile from the river. They finished it just in time. The first major snow of the season fell soon afterward. The days got shorter and the nights got longer. It took a while before anyone noticed. There hadn't been an animal in sight for days. No birds, nothing. No tracks in the snow. They had nothing to hunt for food. They had very few rations left after the flood. A grim reality was becoming apparent. If there was nothing to hunt, and if it was too late to forage for food, there was no way they could all survive hunting parties went out day after day looking for something, anything but they returned with nothing what rations they did have were stretched as much as possible they were in the middle of nowhere no one was coming to save them I could see the hopelessness in Mary Catherine's handwriting. I could see that she'd stopped caring about recording for posterity. Entries in the journal got farther apart. No more pontificating on the journey or the exploration. No more joking with Elena. Only big events were written down now. And they weren't good. A few weeks after the first snow, one of the wives got sick, and three days later she died. None of the malnourished group had the strength or energy to dig a grave, and even if they could, the ground was frozen solid. She was taken outside and covered in snow. A darkness and hopelessness fell over the camp. On Christmas Day, 1769, something happened. After weeks of living on starvation rations, on an overcast morning, that oppressive, hazy fog hung in the air, obscuring your vision at a certain distance, far enough away as to not be immediately noticed, but close enough before everything blurred together in that hazy gray. A man stood on the edge of the tree line. Everyone crowded in the doorway to get a glimpse. He looked like one of them, a settler, like he could have left Boston with them. Everyone just stood there for a long while, waiting to see who would make the first move. After what seemed like forever, it was the man on the edge of the woods who made the first move. He began to stride toward them, confident and collected. He looked like someone who was in charge. In charge of what was unclear. He told them he was from a settlement nearby and stumbled upon them early that morning while scouting for game. The group knew that there were other settlers moving west, just like them, and it wouldn't be out of the question for another stray winter camp to be nearby. The stranger said they were just a few miles upriver. It was his first time scouting this direction. It was apparent from the ragged shape of the men and women that they were struggling to make it through the winter. He said they were lucky he'd run into them. Their camp had a surplus of supplies, he said. He couldn't speak for the entire camp, but he was sure they'd be willing to help out. Maybe even take them in for the winter. They had plenty of space. Some of the men were skeptical what choice did they have? They would run out of food within the week. And why else would this man be out here, hundreds of miles from anything? He had to be telling the truth, as unlikely as it was. Maybe, just maybe, this was an answer to their prayers. This was starting to sound like the happy accident I'd been told about. Two groups. One got lost, and the other had suffered a tragedy. The two joined up and worked together to survive. The stranger told the party to follow him to his camp. They could make a return trip for what remained of their things after they'd had a good meal and regained some of their strength. The most important thing was to get them all healthy again. Then, Mary Catherine wrote something that made the hair on my neck stand up. The stranger said, You'll never survive the winter. My phone buzzed. Ah. It was Lenny. Coming by to practice tonight. Are you home? I sent back a winking emoji. What the fuck did that even mean? I looked out into the dark, empty sanctuary. The permanent lights overhead fading farther and farther into the rows of pews. I opened the journal from where I'd left off. It seemed like things were looking up. Most of Mary Catherine's group grabbed what they could carry and prepared to leave with the stranger. It was a half day's march upriver. But there was a problem. Mary Catherine was pregnant and nearly full term. She hadn't even realized it until they were on their journey. She wouldn't be able to walk that far, she would need to stay behind. They made a plan to return the next day with food and provisions, enough to weather the final weeks of the pregnancy, and then they'd join them when the baby was born. Her husband would go with them and carry everything they needed back to the camp. Elena Bishop, Mary Catherine's best friend, would stay behind with her. Elena was good with a musket, and she wasn't afraid of a night alone in the wilderness. In fact, She welcomed it. The two women spent the night alone in their wilderness cabin. A heavy wind and cold air blew in late in the day. It would have worried them, but the others should have arrived at the stranger's camp by then. They should be safe and sound. The two of them ate more than their share of rations, just a little more. But this was a night of celebration. They joked and laughed through the night and went to sleep feeling better than they had in weeks. Their prayers had been answered. The next day, the two of them began watching for their husbands to return at first light, even though they knew it was a half-day's journey. The morning came and went, and then the afternoon. They began to worry. Something must have held them up. It was probably fine. Nonetheless, the second night alone in the cabin wasn't as celebratory as the first. Another day passed, and something was definitely wrong now. Mary Catherine wrote that this third night was silent. There was no wind. Still no animals. No creaking in the trees. Nothing. Neither of them really spoke that night. No one dared to say out loud what they feared to be true. No one was coming back for them. On the fourth day, Elena packed up the musket and told Mary Catherine she was going to follow the footprints in the snow. She would follow them to the other camp and find out what was going on. One way or another, she said, she would be back by nightfall. Mary Catherine didn't write anything at all the day Elena was gone. I can only imagine the anxiety and dread while she waited for her friend to return. That night, just before sundown, Elena appeared on the edge of the clearing and ran to her. Her friend was terrified. She had trouble speaking aloud what she'd found. She followed the footprints. She followed them for a long time. Big, wide, well-worn prints from the whole group walking together. But there was another set of prints. A single person that left the main path. She followed that single set of prints out of curiosity... And after a while, she came upon another big, well-trodden path. She understood what had happened right away. They'd been led to walk in circles, spiraling outward. And by going off the trail to follow the single set of steps, she'd just skipped to the end. It wasn't much further until she found the first body of her fellow explorers. A husband and wife who'd turned back and were heading the way they'd come, trying to follow their footsteps back, but they'd already gone too far. They were doomed. Then there were others shortly thereafter. Body after body ...of their fellow settlers. They'd been led to their deaths. Mary Catherine asked... ...and Elena confirmed. There were no survivors. Both of their husbands were among the dead. How could this have happened? They couldn't escape the inevitable conclusion. Without the stranger and the generosity of his group the two of them were doomed too they had extra rations without the others but it still wouldn't be enough to see them through the winter the next morning they awoke to find a heavy snow falling that gray fog that was so oppressive lingering in the air and just on the edge of their vision for the world disappeared behind a veil of haze. The stranger was there, standing at the edge of the forest. He was alone. He didn't try to approach them. He just stood, still as stone. And then he just turned back into the forest... And in just a few steps, he was completely obscured by trees. He came back every morning. Every morning, Elena stood in the doorway with the musket. And every morning, after some time passed, he turned back into the forest. They were days away from exhausting their rations. Elena told Mary Catherine she was going to go talk to him. There had to be a reason he kept coming around. Mary Catherine begged her not to, but Elena insisted. There was no other choice. They would starve to death in a matter of days. And besides, Elena had an idea what was going on. She knew who he was. Mary Catherine watched her friend walk out into the clearing, musket in hand. The stranger began toward her, and he'd offered to make a deal. And that's when I heard it, and it brought me back to the present, a clicking sound. Like something was dropped on the ground. I looked up, and I scanned the sanctuary. Was the old building settling? Creaking and groaning under its age and weight. But something caught my eye just then. Something that caught my breath in my chest. In the very back row where it was almost too dark to see. Someone I hadn't known was there. Stood up. The woman from my dreams. My nightmares. Elena Bishop. I ran from the sanctuary. I ran as fast as I could. Just outside the sanctuary doors, I turned toward the emergency exit down the hall. But I saw a figure in the dark. Elena again. I lost my balance and nearly fell as I made a quick turn toward the main entry. Behind me, I heard a creaking sound. I turned to look. Every single door had opened at the same time. My body reacted before my brain knew what it was doing. I took off as fast as my legs would take me. I kept my eyes on the exit ahead, and I smashed into the panic bar with all my strength. I was outside. I heard someone calling my name. Lenny. Why was he shouting my name? From the other side of the garden, I saw it before I saw him. Every door and window in the parsonage was open, and every light was on. I didn't leave it like that. Just then, Lenny ran over to me. What's going on, he asked his arms on my shoulders. I was in tears, out of breath, shaking. All I could say was, someone's in the church. Before I could say anything else, he ran toward the door. He shouted back, call 911. And I did, just as he ran into the church to look for whoever was there. The police came quickly, and they swarmed all over the church. Lenny was still inside when one of the officers took my statement and asked me to wait where I was. Once the building was cleared, they'd need me to walk them through what had happened. As the officer walked away, I got a text from Lenny. Thank God he was okay. I opened it and read, Come to the meeting house you won't believe what I found. Just then, Heather, my boss, came rushing in through the gate and into the garden. Thank goodness you're okay, she said and hugged me. I told her everything and she listened. She only stopped to ask one question. Who's Lenny? I got a bad feeling. I remembered the night we went into the meeting house together. How he got weird and I wanted to leave. Something in my gut told me I had to leave. How he had wanted me to go in there with him after our date. How Elena came to scare the shit out of me every time I interacted with him. Or when I fantasized about him. I tried to show Heather the text to Lenny but they were gone. The contact wasn't saved in my phone either. What. The. Fuck. I gathered everything I could carry while the police waited for me, and I stayed at a hotel that night. I wasn't going to be finishing the internship. I didn't care about the consequences. I didn't sleep that night. But I brought that journal from the meeting house with me. And with all of the lights on in my hotel room, I felt safe reading it to the end. Elena had come back to tell Mary Catherine about the deal the stranger had to offer. One of them could survive the winter. And not just that awful winter of 1769. No. He said he had the power to make sure they didn't have to die, ever. But the other one would have to go with him. Absolutely not, Mary Catherine had said. But the next morning, she woke up to find herself alone in the cabin. Elena had left in the night. She'd left behind the musket, and she'd taken no food with her. Mary Catherine never saw the stranger on the edge of the woods again. And every now and then, she'd see a different figure watching her from the woods. A woman. A woman she knew well. A few days later, she gave birth to her first child. And whenever she went to check the food supply, there was always just enough for another day. Just enough. It never ran out. The spring came, and with it came another group of settlers passing through. They were lost and stumbled upon her and her little child. The last survivors of a doomed expedition. The new group was far off course and didn't know how to get back on track. So they decided that this was as good a place as any and they took in Mary Catherine and her daughter. And that was the official version of events. A doomed journey and a lost and wandering band of travelers cross paths and band together to make a go at it. A happy accident. Mary Catherine saw Elena around the edge of the forest or out by the river from time to time. And as Mary Catherine grew older, Elena never did. That's how she came to understand that she was a spirit. Her life ended that night when she went out to find the stranger. But now she was bound here, to this patch of wilderness, and the stranger too. As the town evolved into a trading post, she saw him around, giving her a wink and a nod. Somehow, he was bound to this patch of forest. Maybe he had been all along. At a certain point, Mary Catherine stopped aging. The stranger kept his promise, but with a cruel twist. She was still in good health, but past her prime. And she would stay this way forever. Years passed, then decades. And, from time to time, Mary Catherine would have to go away for a while, and then come back later when there was no one left to remember her. A lonely, sad life. A life without end, but no one to share with. Well, almost no one. I went back the next day to finish packing my things, and that older woman who'd introduced herself to me on my first Sunday. She came to check on me. We made small talk, and then she said something peculiar. I believe you have something of mine. A warm smile stretched over her face. There wasn't a hint of malice in her voice. I'm sorry? I asked the warmth in her eyes completely disarmed me I opened my bag and I pulled the journal out and handed it to her he won't follow you she said but you can never come back she told me I know she nodded her head And began to leave I knew I was going home Back to seminary Back to the same town I'd always lived in Where everyone I've ever loved Had been But wasn't anymore Don't you get so lonely I asked My eyes watering At the thought of it Just as much for me As for her, the warmth in her eyes, still disarming, somehow surviving the centuries. How would I ever be lonely here, she said. I have my best friend right here with me. Sometimes I have to leave for a while, when it becomes obvious, you know. I so very much love coming home to her. Thank you for joining us for this episode of 13. If you like what you heard, stop what you're doing and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This has been The Meeting House, written by Ian Epperson and narrated by me, Brooke Jeanette. Editing and sound design by Liz Walker. Music is by Caleb Ritchie, With assistance from Bridget Howard. Our Patreon partners get access to an exclusive Discord channel to chat with the creators, merch, bloopers, and behind-the-scenes content and weekly updates on the show. Patrons to any of our shows get rewards for all of them, including Olive Hill. We make the credits for each episode a few days in advance of the release, so if you sign up close to the release date, you might hear your name on the following episode. We are on social media, Facebook... Twitter, and Instagram at some version of 13pod or pod13. Just look for the logo. We'll have links in our show notes. If you'd like to submit a story to be performed on the show or contact us about anything else, get in touch at info at 13podcast.com. You can find that in the show notes, too. Bridget Howard is waiting for you on the edge of the clearing. Thanks for listening. See you next month.